This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. I'm Gil Gross, host of Monday Match Analysis with two distinguished tennis journalists, Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. Our main topic today is what regu- um, recreational players can learn from Roger Federer, and we'll do that a three-part series. We'll do Djokovic, we'll do Nadal, of course, uh, but we'll start with the news dump. I think the big news this week is that there's not huge news and that Lexington on the WTA side of things is going smoothly, but one thing we have been keeping track of is uh, Rome and the, really Europe as a whole, and what will the government regulations be around quarantining back to Europe? Really good news for you know, men's tennis players, women's tennis players, is that Italy um, will exempt international athletes, which means players can go to Rome and play that event without the two-week quarantine. That is a good piece of news. That's good to know. That's exciting, good progress. And like you said, Gil, it's good that there's uh, not something bad that's happened. Nope, we haven't heard a player test positive. We're just kind of in in a reasonable place and looks like tennis is happening. And Joel, everyone yeah. looking for, oh, excuse me, Amy, you go ahead. If you look at Major League Baseball, you had like that whole thing with the Marlins and, uh, you know, Tampa Bay. And baseball is just like, okay, we, we play on, you know, they're there. And, and uh, now college football, there's even some conferences that are saying we're going to play. So um, I think the U.S. Open and, and tennis in general is doing the right thing and taking all these safety precautions and doing this bubble. We're ahead of other sports. So there really shouldn't be a problem getting in these two slams. Just crossing our fingers and seeing how this, how this goes. I was talking with a coach recently and he was telling me about this whole bubble at the U.S. Open at the Marriott and the, and the NASA Coliseum. And they're just kind of all bracing themselves. You know, I've been working on a story about people coming back and, and just people are being, uh, they're being fit, so they're being, uh, you know, stretching, and it's just going to be kind of an interesting thing. But I'll tell you this, uh, someone asked me, wow, is there going to be an asterisk because of some of these fields? I said, look, you want to slam during a pandemic. There's no asterisk attached to that. That's an incredible effort. Yeah, that'll be widely debated, however the U.S. Open goes. Joel, you mentioned some altered activity during the pandemic. One thing is people reading more. A new book from Racket Magazine, right? Yes, this here is the first ever issue of Racket Magazine. And this is pretty much the, this is the cover of the Racket Magazine, the book. This, they use the same cover for the, for the new book. And it just came out uh, recently and uh, a lot of interesting pieces. I will say one of them is a piece that I wrote called After the Gold Rush about the rise and fall of the tennis boom. And Racket, Racket Magazine, what's really fun about this, what the founders, uh, Caitlin Thompson, David Sheftel did, create a magazine that looks at stories that are kind of story behind the story. So it's not necessarily a magazine you read for, for news of the day as much as there's a concept that says uh, certain literature and art is news that stays news. You know, stories that you're going to really find interesting for many years to come that take interesting esoteric angles. So it's really fun to be 
have my story in as a part of this uh, new anthology. Well, what we're about to Joel, talk about. Congratulations, Joel, on that. that. That piece that you wrote was fabulous. I haven't met Caitlin yet. We have some mutual friends, but she's done a tremendous job with this thing. Um, the, the magazine itself is, each one is like a work of art. It's like a collector's item. I have everyone. Um, never mind the fantastic articles that are written in there. Um, but anyway, congratulations on that. And I know that Caitlin is also a player. So give us your segue, Gil. <laughs> My segue was going to be that uh, similarly to Racket Magazine, we have a, a pretty evergreen topic, unless everyone stops playing tennis all at once, which, which won't happen. We want to talk about Roger Federer, what he does, and what recreational players have learned from him and can learn from him. And let's start here. He just turned 39 years old. So, and one thing that all recreational players want is longevity. Joel, you're still, you're still playing all the time. Have you, what have you learned from Roger Federer when it comes to longevity, staying healthy, staying fit, and trying to play tennis for as long as you can? I think one thing you watch, I watch Roger Federer play and practice a million times. And one thing you see, there's so many things, but I think one thing you notice about some of the great players, the longevity players like Federer, Ken Rosewall, Chris Everett, Jimmy Connors, tremendous posture and a lot of emphasis on posture when they're playing and balance. I know uh, Amy was a dancer, so she can address this too. Um, how you look at a guy like Federer, that guy could play with a phone book on his head. And it, it allows him to address the ball properly. You know, baseball players talk about swinging at a good pitch. And in tennis, you do that, but you have to do that on the run. And you see how someone like Federer, I mean, that's just one of the many things. And I've, I've been taking lessons for a number of years from a guy named Steve Stefanke, whose brother Larry is a notable coach. And Steve does a lot of work, not just because of Roger Federer, because of all the other people, going back to Don Budge and a, a great teacher called Tom Stowe. How do we stay properly balanced? How do we not reach for the ball? And that, because like, like when you're at the net, like uh, I heard this instructor, Tom Stowe and Roger Federer would get this. He would have students practice their volleys sitting in a stool. So think about that. If you reach, you're gonna fall. So, and so Federer, watch his balance. Just watch him practice and watch that posture. It is just extraordinary. That's one thing. So that's helped me having turned 60 this year. We're trying to work on that. That's interesting that you say that, uh, Joel, because for me, Novak is the one that has that core he strength. Does. He absolutely yeah. does. Yeah, that's like his hallmark. But yeah, obviously Federer has it too. They both have it really well. Novak is probably more crafted, but uh, Federer, I just think of, I think of that posture. Yeah, absolutely. And I think about anticipation, efficiency of footwork. What Federer, I think, has uh, one thing that I take away from his movement is footwork is movement, right? And it's not just how big your quads are and how explosive you are. You know, I mean, there are, there are players who I'm sure could do a better combine, 40-yard dash, broad jump, long jump than Roger Federer. They don't move on the court as well because how you move your feet matters. And Roger is so efficient with his footwork. And uh, I think the, the posture thing and the balance thing is, is also a part of that. 
Roger has said that movement is the most important aspect of tennis. That is a quote from him. And, you know, even today, when, when I was in a clinic, um, we were working on movement. And, it, and specifically, we were working on the movement when you approach the net. And this little subtle nuance of the game, which is you run toward the net, you split step, and you then move forward to hit a volley or move backwards or whatever. So Federer came up as, you know, the big three always come up in people's clinics and, and when they play and all that. They're, these icons are just ingrained in the sport. But the way that Federer does that little split step, and I had to share this story during the clinic, which was I got into a big debate with a coach on tour. Um, I said, Federer doesn't always split step when he approaches the net. And the guy said, yes, he does. And I said, no, I was watching a match the other night and he didn't split step. And he's like, you're wrong, Amy. So we actually went back to the videotape and I was wrong. He did split step, but it was so subtle. It was like a dance move. I mean, it was a thing of beauty. We recreational players, we will often split step like an elephant. I mean, this was just the most subtle. The, the feet were like light as air. And, um, you know, you're right. And, and, and these, are, these are the types of things I think that um, recreational and amateur players can learn. Well, and the other thing, though, from Federer that they, another thing to learn that I, I wrote about this a few months ago. This is, I broached this concept. Federer, he, win, he might win ugly. And I don't, he wins ugly pretty. I mean, Federer is, he, he's not, people don't come off the court playing Roger Federer and thinking, God, I got my butt kicked. This guy just smashed me. No, they've been kind of dissected. He's kind of, he's kind of, you know, filleted them. He's kind of sauteed them. And they even, like, Jim Ayers told me this great thing. He says, you know, if I was playing Roger Federer, I think I would be like a witness. There's so many ways he's winning points and he's doing this to me and he's doing that to me. And next thing you know, he's beating me. He says, Nadal is like throwing me down to the ground. And we'll, we'll talk about Nadal in another episode. And there's something virtuous and great about what Nadal does. But I think what Federer does, yeah, Federer, he kind of takes your measure and sees how much you can go. It's a little bit more, I mean, you covered baseball, Amy. It's a little more like a Greg Maddox or a Pedro Martinez. He's just subtly understanding where you can hit and where you can't. And okay, now I see, I've, I've read your file. I, I see what you have. And now I'm going to go about probing you and picking you apart. I mean, that stuff, you know, like that, uh, that short slice backhand, that's a Sunday morning shot. I mean, he hits it as well as anyone, but he uses that little slice backhand to force people to dig it out. I mean, Gil, how you're, you're, you're the two-hander in this group. How would you uh -huh. like dealing with that little short one to your backhand? It is the absolute worst shot ever. I hate that shot, and I don't feel that bad about it because so does Novak. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah. It, I mean, look, the, I think what's so difficult about that, that short chip cross court to the righty two-handed backhand is uh, you really most – most players hit a flatter backhand, and when you're in that position on the court – when you're inside the court, you really have to get the ball to dip back down. Otherwise, it's going to fly long. You have to get a tremendous amount of topspin in order to hit that shot with any kind of pace. And that's really difficult for the two-hander. And the footwork is, is tough as well because you lose a little reach 
if you have a two-hander as opposed to the one-hander. So you got to get even further inside the court to execute the shot. Yeah, I think flat balls that are received um, on either wing are very, very hard to deal with. I find flat balls exceptionally hard to deal with. Um, but that's, you know, from anywhere on the court, from any wing. Um, but the fact that one-handers can, you know, they can either put top on that uh, backhand or they can drive it or they can, uh, they can slice it. Is, um, it's just a set of skills on that wing that Federer has mastered. Well, well, uh, well as he commands the, the space of the court that way, because so now the court is becoming different. And we've all seen how many times when he's used, let's say, the slice, and the guy digs it out, and then Federer runs around his backhand. And the one thing is, he's a little bit of a slice and dicer with a big forehand. You know what I mean? So it's, it's like he can go from suddenly like, you know, a little, little West Coast offense, a little dink and dunk with these shots, and then he can throw the bomb because the forehand, yeah. he can really terminate you with the forehand. He's not just going to hit a little approach shot and now come in. But don't you think he's kind of the, the modern representative of variety? Yes, absolutely. That's exactly right. So sure. the fact that he has that, that short chip that he can go to and then he can bomb his forehand or he can you know hit a drop shot from either wing or he can hit the same cross court buggy whip angle that Nadal is famous for you know i think that's another thing that you know when a when a young player or whatever a, a recreational player wants to have every shot in the book perhaps they want that because they want to be like Federer well let's hope so and I think what's neat, though, it's funny, though, I talk to a lot of parents or when I'm playing juniors, and the, the thing I get concerned about Federer, he does it such an exquisite level, arguably the best ever. You know, people talk about it like, you know, as, a, as an incredible virtuoso. And so this parent says, wow, he's such a genius. How could I even, how could my child even begin to imitate that? And I will say, I'm a four or five player. I'm 60 years old. I can hit a slice backhand and a topspin backhand in the same rally. Watch me. I can do that. So it's a question of, of both skill building, but also the vision of deployment. It's like, for example, I know from having hit with you, Amy, a lot of people of, let's say, your age and stage, they'll be issued a two-hander. Okay, here you go. Have a two-hander. Have that shot. And you don't want that. You, for various reasons, how you, how you like the game, unless, unless you've changed something the last reason, you, you're working on a one-hander. And Roger's a bit of your guy for that. Am I wrong? Yeah, I mean, um, I think that um, for one thing, I did actually try to switch to two hands, um, but it didn't work. It, it just, and, right. and Roger actually said, like, he's been asked this question a million times, will you teach your kids uh, one hand or a two-handed backhand? And, you know, sometimes if you ask the question the right way, you can coax out of him that he'll say, yeah, there's probably a lot of advantages to a two-hander and maybe we'll start there or something. But he did answer the question this way once. And it was that the person should hit the backhand the way that feels most natural to them. And okay. after having tried the two-hander, I, I remembered that. And I went back to the one-hander and it felt like going home. So I'm like, this is my shot. I might as well own it and try to make it better. Well, and that's the question of how you integrate into your game. It's like for me, since I like to come to net, I'm left-handed. 
the one-handed backhand works for me for a, a great many number of things. And, and I think for Federer, I think for people learning, trying to learn from him, they should see it as a process, as an idea of learning the great variety of a great many shots that make the game enjoyable. I mean, the drop shot approach, the chip, ch you know, the saber. I'd say, leave it to Roger Federer. That's a hundred year old technique that I've been doing since I was 13. It's called the chip charge. So leave it to Roger Federer to rebrand it. You know, next thing it's like he discovered, he discovered the idea of coming in on the guy's served out. Granted, he was doing a little bit of this running. And Almost it a half little, volley though. Yeah, but he yeah, always, it, yeah, it's no, no. It is. Yeah, but you know, do you think he was the first? You think he's the first to ever hit that as a half volley? Negatory, sir. I mean. I resort to you on that, yes. Yeah, I, me too. Okay. So, yeah, and also the running, and, and it was Roger, and it had his own special, you know, he has his own, what, je ne sais quoi that you can't teach, but, but still, these are all extant. These things have all existed in the history of the game. The drop shot approach, the short slice backhand, you know, the, the, the wide deuce court serve, all these, all these little things that dimensionalize the federal portfolio. In a way, we're kind of uh, spoiling ourselves because the other two guys we talk about on the show are great too, and there'll be plenty to talk about, but none of them have the breadth of Roger. Well, so. Gil, Gil, the one thing, just to go back to what you said a, a bit ago, a huge pet peeve of mine is when it comes up in conversation on court or in a lesson or, or whatever, um, those guys, the big three, play a different game than we do. So therefore, we can't try to do what they do. We just have to play what is within our skill set. Amy, do your friends, and is that your friends or your teachers who say that? I think it's a cross section. There's a lot of people who believe that. Your friends should be reprogrammed and your teachers should be sued. <laughs> I mean, I just, think, I just think that the, uh, I know a lot of people say that. And they also say that that's a way of exonerating ourselves because we can just see they're just in a whole other universe galaxy we shouldn't even dare occupy. Now, granted, as far as the, the speed with how they hit the ball, the right. incredible nuance of that split step you described, I get that. We're in elementary school and they're, post, they're beyond postdoctoral. But I don't know what, really, we, we can't try a drop shot approach shot? What do you think, Gil? Oh, I'm, I'm with you 100%. You should try to emulate professional tennis players. You, you should. Um, what you should emulate is that requires some nuance. That requires some real understanding. Okay. You, can't just, you can't just pick it off the rack. You know, it's like, you can, like, I'll tell you, I was writing an advice column. This will talk about <laughs> another player. And someone said, I'm a 4-0 player. I'm 45 years old and I only play doubles and I want Nadal's forehand. And I wrote back to the person. I said, you don't, you don't need Nadal's forehand. You need to work on your overhead. Sure. That's yep. you need to work on. So it's a question of, right. Yeah. Uh, now, I agree with you completely on shot selection. I, I really liked your line. I can hit a slice in the tops and back end in the same rally. Even, even technique, and a lot of people will say, don't, don't emulate so-and-so's technique. Well, you know, you'll see a player who, let's say, puts their, their racket up behind their, their head before they toss the ball. Only, right, Sarah Irani does that. She's got the worst serve on, in the, on the WTA tour. Watch what pros are doing. Try to, you know, they're mostly doing things the right way. So if your serve looks completely different, you're probably doing something wrong. It might work for you at I a certain level, teacher, right? Though, with a teacher and a student though, at the same time though, I'm not big on people just watching videotapes and, and emulating what Roger Federer does because I think the instructor can point to you 
what are the things he does that you should truly apply? And they tend to be a lot more from the lower body. That's where the real source is, the, low, the, the, the hips, the legs. That's where it's, it's like footwork is different than foot speed. Like the way we see, you know, the, this is a three-yard game. You know, this is a three-yard game. So it's all about those adjustment steps mm-hmm. and what those are about and how we get ourselves organized to the ball rather than, oh, look at his wrist flick or look at his swing or look at that part, which is almost long after the ball is gone. So, yeah, that's, I don't know, a lot of, yeah, a lot of things you can learn from these guys. What about practice? We've all watched Roger practice and we've seen Nadal practice and uh, it looks very different. And we'll, we'll focus on Roger there's not a lot of intensity really. Now it's not to say, and I've seen him ramp it up a little bit, but for the most part, he's hitting the ball. He's staying at the baseline. A lot of the times he has two players on the other side of the net and he's extraordinarily relaxed when he's practicing. Why do you think that is? Well, we've seen him practice at tournaments. Yes. Remember there's the during tournament practice and there's the, the mystical Dubai, which I talked about once with Paul Anacone, about what does Roger do in Dubai? And he goes, he does nothing that you can't do. He just does it a lot better. You know, he does remember, Joel, remember when Roger posted his practice from Dubai? Yes. Remember oh, how great that was? Yeah, that was great. And we could all, like, pull back the curtain and see exactly what he does. And I think, you know, what he does is one heck of a dynamic warm-up. I mean. <laughs> That's right. That's we should all do that. But, well, but, um, if, we're, if we're disposed, you know, it's like that, that's pretty good, like with the throwing the ball. Like, well, yeah, if we, assuming we have someone else who's going to throw us a volleyball while we're, while we're doing it. And, but even the, other, even the stuff he can do, that's, that's a great point. I think he's, he's just letting himself play tennis. He's not, he's not working tennis. You know, we'll, we'll talk about suffering when we get to Nadal, but we're talking about playing. We're talking about an attitude. But back to Gil's earliest point in this podcast, um, there's a lot of fitness coaches out there that um, are making a, a good living advising tour players and, and on down college players and on down the food chain. And they will, each one will tell you that they know exactly what's best and you know, you need to uh, chain two tires to your ankles and run sprints or you, and, and this is not to disparage those guys because those, and, and girls, because those people are fantastic. But I've always said, this is like my mantra. Why don't we all just do what Roger does? Oh. Find out exactly what he does and do it because okay. he is, he's obviously the role model. I think I think we got I think the way to look at this is to peel it a little bit. I think I think the Roger Federer downstream mellow thing, that's not bad for anyone no matter what they're doing, even if they want to be, even if they never hit a drop shot approach in their life. I think the longevity has been fueled a lot by his technique because the technique is so smooth and he's worked to make it smooth. I mean, Pete Sampras told me the same thing once. He said, people knew how hard I worked to make it look easy, they would appreciate that. They, a little bit more than just thinking he came out of the womb hitting the ball smoothly. But I, I do think, though, the art form for a player with a coach, instructor, parents is to find out the ways that they go about finding that place. You know, I, going back a generation, I once did a story. I watched Agassi and, pra- Agassi and Sampras practice on the same morning for critical Davis Cup matches. 
and Agassi mm. a little more like a little more like probably like a bitch like you, Gil, or Jimmy Connors. You needed to get some energy going. He wanted a lot of energy. He needed a lot of balls and rid it going and you know really feel the energy and play points and move and sweat. And Sampras a little more like Federer. It's like I got a Porsche. I take it on the block, find my feel, find my control, and just feel good about it. And there's no, I don't think, I don't think for the executional aspect of a practice, there's a right or wrong answer. There's the answer that the player needs to find. And some of it is trial and error. Some of it, and I'll tell you guys as the oldest person on the show, some of it you'll find changes as you age. During this pandemic, for example, instead I'm playing only every other day. Usually I'm playing three days, maybe sometimes four days in a row, but I know there's something going on in the world right now that's affecting all of us, you know, physiologically, whether we admit it or not, with this, with the pandemic that makes it, you know, I don't want to stress myself every day necessarily. That's art more than science. I don't know. And then mm -hmm. I'll tell you this other thing, Gil, relating to you and being, since you are about the same size and we grew up in different eras and different techniques, but I did this uh, interview on the same day. I interviewed a Hall of Famer, Nancy Ritchie. She was five foot two, and Rosie Casals, five foot two, both Hall of Famers. Nancy Ritchie's from Texas. She had a father who was a teacher, and the father was a, kind of a taskmaster. And Nancy said, I was short. I had to make sure I didn't miss, because that's, that's kind of a little bit of a contemporary attitude. I had to make sure I didn't miss because I didn't want to miss. I needed to stay in points. Rosie Casals, five foot two grows out in public parks in San Francisco in the 60s. She's, uh, she didn't have a father who taught her. She kind of was self-taught, playing on parks, playing with adults, playing lots of tennis. She's, you know what, I was short. I thought I needed to do something to them before they did something to me. There's no <laughs> right or wrong answer with this. There's just, it almost is, is it culture, is it nature, is it nurture? It's like, you're, a, you're the mom in here, Amy. You're gonna have two kids and let's say they each are gonna go about, they're gonna about doing their, their reports, their, their extracurricular things, their athletics, they're going to do it in their own ways. Maybe some will be similar and some will be different on who they are and how their, how their mom recognizes who they are, right? Correct. And yeah, I mean, Joel, I've been nodding my head at everything you say, but at the but same time, the I, I, well, I think there are training techniques that over time have been scientifically proven to be more longevity inducing. That's true. And, and there are those that have been proven to be more taxing on the body. And yeah, that's so, what, so nobody ahead, would look at a Federer practice and a Nadal practice and say that Nadal's practice is better for longevity. Nobody, nobody would, be, would argue that. What some people may argue, I'm sure what Tony Nadal would argue, is that Rafa Nadal would not be the player who he is if he didn't practice like he practiced. So I, I hear you, but I, I don't think you can look at Federer's practice and Nadal's practice and say that Federer's is correct. No, but what you can say, see what you can say is also with, with like the, the, and Nadal, remember, we see these people practice during tournaments. We don't know what they're doing. We don't, we don't know exactly what they're doing in the off weeks, which are really the training blocks. You know, the tournaments are the between match, We've got for a match sure. going on, and how do you do that for 45 minutes? The off weeks are intriguing, and the off weeks might have changed over the years. I know, for example, that Agassi really changed his practice routine as he entered his 30s, his, his workouts, his things. And, and Amy, I think you made a great point. What techniques promote longevity? And then there's also knowing your, 
your body type and what your weaknesses, you know, what parts of your body are more prone to certain injuries than others. So you can't just yeah, unilaterally do the same deal you did when you were 24 at, at 34. And, yeah, and, and it, you guys are right, and Gil is right, that style has a lot to do with it. There was a, a really pivotal study out of uh, University of Arizona. Uh, if it's Arizona State, I'm sure somebody will correct me, but I think it's University of Arizona that said hitting open stance is more taxing on the hip. You know, they looked at, at players who hit the majority open stance. And um, so, you know, again, there are things that, depending on your style, you may have to adjust your training regimen to that. I just think from a general sense, if you talk about the big three, the one thing I take from Federer is his movement. And the way that he trains for that movement, I think, is the gold standard. Well, no back. Novak, the thing I take from him is the the core. Like you were talking about posture. I mean, to me, that triangular core that, that Novak always has is, is you know, they, that's what makes him Gumby-like. And then from Nadal, the thing I take is the intangibles, the work ethic, and, you know, the, the things he says, like every point is an opportunity to regain your focus and, well, I've yeah, got a thought here. Maybe as we work through these guys, it's funny we're talking, since we're talking about Federer, we're talking about longevity and techniques and what makes Federer so much great at Federer that way. When we get to Nadal, we'll tangibilize the intangibles and see what we really mean by this. And remember, Nadal, if Federer appears that he's always working in the rules of nature, remember, Nadal made a major step not to do that by becoming a left-hander. If you're a natural righty and you opt to become a left-hander, you're going to put your body through some things no matter how willful you are. And we'll get to that when we talk about Nadal. Yeah, now, which you know, is so interesting because that's, that's what's happening to my son right now. He's a righty, um, but he's, he has some level of ambidexterity and they're pushing him toward leftiness on the tennis court. Well, you have to see what he takes to truly because the natural thing, because now, now I want to take this world-class dialogue of these guys, of veteran and world-class and say, okay, now let's bring it down to the rest of us because that's what a little bit of this theme is, like how we can really do these things. And, and, and I'm thinking more about, I'm thinking more about the inside the lines work, you know, what, what we can, what people can learn from these people. And I think from Federer, what people should learn is that he's such a great disruptor of time and space and the court. And no one, no one maybe ever has been so good at kind of like making the court different all the time. One of the things that's pleasing about Roger watching him play, you see a lot of different points, you know, with all due respect to Novak, I watched him and Andy Mario play the French Open final a few years ago. And with about 20 minutes, I know I'd seen about 98% of the shots and rallies I was going to see. You know, I kind of knew that. There's Murray, there's Noka. That's, that's a contemporary style. And with Roger Federer, Roger Federer can play any of us or anyone. Wow, there are going to be some interesting different points here, which are a result of his different shots and his vision of the game and the enjoyment he has. So to me, because that, I guess... Um, I like that because that's what, I mean, I do that and I like that. So maybe I like that because I do that, but I see the game that way of that kind of creative. I don't even know it's creative. It's just the broadest toolbox, the West coast offense, the, the screen pass, the, the flanker reverse, the chip and charge, all this stuff. Well, this is what episode five of this podcast. 
I'm seeing a trend and I actually kind of like it. It's that Joel and Gil are kind of often on the same side. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we spent fun. I own it. I own it. I'll no, take but, it. But it's interesting though, but on the other hand, you're the one who most likes Fetter. I'm the one who might do the most playing things like Fetter because Gil and I might agree on certain things, but Gil and I, like for example, in, the, in, that, in that story I told earlier, I'm the more Rosie Casals. I, I want to do something to them before they do it to me. And you're digging in, Gil. I mean, I don't want to play you on clay. You know, you're, you're digging in on you. David Ferrer's your guy, right? Yeah, well, gr growing up in the Northeast, I hardly get to play on clay. But, but yes, Ferrer, Ferrer is my guy. And I think I play pretty close to him in style. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's no argument about, um, about what you said about, you know, the variety. And we've hit on that. But I want to shift gears to temperament. We've been very technical, very physical. Let's go to, let's go okay. to the mind real quick. Mm -hmm. For Roger, mm -hmm. I believe he makes recreational players um, carry themselves a little bit better. And you, you could probably say the same thing about Nadal. But Nadal's a little bit different and a little bit harder to achieve because Nadal get, is very positive, gets really high and never gets low. That's like impossible. Like throw that out the window. The running, Fetter, out to, the running out to the coin toss and all that stuff. Yeah, right. And okay. just, you know, you'll never see Nadal get too open. You know, the, the negativity never comes out and the positivity comes out all the time. Who knows how he does that? Federer, I think, is more obtainable, which is even. Never too high, never too low. Be strategic about when you get upset with yourself. Be strategic about even when you show positive emotion, when you let out a come on. I think Federer is, the, is a player, temperament-wise, that you can really strive to, to be like. He's a reformed whiner. That's a reform. Remember, right. he, was a, he was a temperamental junior, and even in, early in his pro career, he was kind of a, a talent. You know, he, was, he was possibly, though no one really thought of it, in a saffin like the, the talent, wasted, you know, kind of like little moody. So I think that's true. I think, I think that's a great point. What do, you, what do you make of that, Amy? Um, you know, when you talk about the mental side of the game with Federer, I actually don't think about temperament because I think he's probably a little more complicated than we realize on that front. I think about, uh, if you'll indulge me in a, a little story, I was doing a story on um, basically rally length a few years ago. I was at, out at Indian Wells. And Federer had made the comment earlier in the year that um, it, it was kind of a joke or a throwaway line that um, he felt that he needed to shorten the points now that he was getting older. So I kind of seized on that and I was looking at some data about that. So I actually asked Roger in a press conference, is it true that you're trying to shorten the points? And he looked at me and, and kind of the whole room around me went dark and it became kind of like a tunnel thing. And he was speaking right to me, right at me. Was it like an eclipse? And, Did you see the yeah, nature? Yeah. And the, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up and I was looking at him and he was looking at me and he says, I like to play the shorter points. That's me. That's my personality. But you have to be willing to play the longer points That's you must yeah and he goes you know and I, I i was like 
yes, I do know. Yes, I do know. Cause I hate, like, I didn't say that, but in my mind, I'm thinking he's talking to me and he seems to know that I am this exact way too. And it was pretty much the greatest piece of advice that anyone's ever given me in tennis. And to this day, I'm working through that and processing what he said as I take the court. And uh, it just happens to have been given by one of the greatest players ever. That's a great story. That's a great story. And I think it's just, it's kind of neat. I think we're lucky that we can have these sort of moments where we can kind of get a little into the soul, or at least we think it. I mean, you have no idea, you know, it's like, it's to him, it's one of 5,000 answers he gives a year. And yet there's a certain kind of thing you saw. That's the great thing about the sport, these singular people and they address singular people, whether they're players or writers or whatever. And, and you kind of got an essence of them. So that's, that's good stuff. Kind of the, the Federer mindset aligning with Amy's mindset. And that, that was kind of the goal to talk about how, uh, how the average player can relate to the, one of the three uh, great players, titans of the sport at the moment. And we will hit the other two. We'll hit Novak and we will hit Rafa. Future episode, not sure if it'll be next week. Not sure if it'll be further down the road. But regardless, hope you enjoyed this one. Uh, remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe on YouTube. Like the video. And we'll see you next time for the next episode of 3.